Liz Jensen discussed her use of structure, analogy, revision, and theme. I began by asking about the narrative structure of her novels *Ark Baby* and *The Ninth Life of Louis Drax*. One of the things that interests me about your writing is the way in which there's a constant tension in each one of them between one narrative and another narrative, or one time and another time. *Ark Baby* has four voices. Louis Drax has two voices: the nine-year-old boy in a coma. And the neurologist who's dealing with him, is this to do with wanting to keep the reader busy? It's to do with wanting to keep me busy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's for me. It really is about entertaining myself. And so, if I get bored, that's no good. There won't be a book. So, it's the change of pace and the change of point of view is largely about that, because I need to do something a bit different. And it's also because the problem very often with just one first-person narrator is they can't know everything, and so then you have to think of ways in which they could find something out, and that's not always very convenient. So in the case of Louis Drax, quite early on, I realised I can't tell the whole story from the point of view of a boy in a coma who never wakes up. I have to bring in someone else, so I brought in the doctor. Sometimes I'll bring in a third-person. Narrator, rather reluctantly, and intercut it with a first-person narrator. Interestingly, the n- average reader never notices whether it's first-person or third-person. They simply don't notice. I've asked a lot of readers questions about books they've read, and I said, "What person is it in?" And they don't know. Very often, they don't know, because in a way, it doesn't matter. As long as the information is getting to the reader. As long as they keep reading. There's also a strong sense of you not just entertaining yourself as a writer, but entertaining the reader by making the language busy as well as the structure busy, so that there's a constant rush of metaphor and simile. Yes, I like larking about with language. I love that. I enjoy, you know, playing around with all the different possibilities and using unusual words and turns of phrase. For instance, in Egg Dancing, your first novel, there's a moment where, of one character, you say his eyes turned the colour of an old anorak, and a little later, of another character, you say there was a smile tweaking at his mouth. And I wonder if you get a little kind of feeling of pleasure when the word suddenly appears. Oh, great pleasure! Yes, if you can get it right, and and if you're pleased with it, then it's an enormous pleasure, and you hope that that. Pleasure will convey itself to the reader, and that they'll take a similar pleasure. Because how was I to know that everyone would know what I meant by the colour of an old anorak? What, what colour is an old anorak? Everyone has their own idea. I think the reader does half the work with a lot of these things. And I remember when my father came across this line about the old anorak, he said to me, "That's my anorak you're talking about, isn't it?" And it was because he had a particularly washed-out, grubby-looking, greyish, greenish. Anorak, and we joked about it. Most of your novels have got institutions of some yeah, form I'm a in them. Sucker for institutions. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of reasons why I go in for the sort of hospital and mental hospital type environment. I'm very interested in the, the borderline between fantasy and reality, and I think if I do have a theme in any of my books, that's the one that holds them all together. The satire in your novel seems to me one in which you laugh very hard at the absurdities. Of life, and perhaps particularly scientific experiments to do with fertility and eugenics, the absurdity of twenty-first century science 
and also the absurdity of 21st century religion. Well, I'm very interested in the clash between science and religion. I mean, I'm particularly interested in science, and I read The New Scientist, and I always gravitate towards science stories in the newspaper because they're so fertile. If you're ever stuck for an idea, read The New Scientist. There's your next novel. I, I mean, I really do believe there's so much going there. Religion I've always found very interesting because of the fact that I'm interested in the mind and what it does to the mind and what people use it for. I'm not religious at all myself, and I'm an atheist, but I'm very fascinated by other people's faith and probably rather envious of it too because I think life would be so much easier if you could believe in something, um, some kind of higher power who was in charge of this mess. I think I'm actually laughing because otherwise I would cry. I, I do think the world is a total mess. It's a disaster. And I write to find a way of coping with that fact. I'm, I think, an optimistic kind of pessimist. In War Crimes, Gloria actually says one of her jokes is um, oh, about the optimist and the yeah. pessimist. Yeah, which kind of sums everything up for me. There's an optimist and the pessimist, and the pessimist says, oh, no, flings his head in his hands. Oh, no, things just can't get any worse. And the optimist says, oh, yes, they can. <laughs> <laughs> I think the targets of my satire are quite personal sometimes. I think with the paper eater, for example, that idea was born in a supermarket. And I think that idea was born out of my own rage at b being a consumer. It's a howl of fury, really, against consumerism. And I think satire is very often born of anger. And I think in my case it has been born of anger. If you take the more satirical works I've done, which were my first three novels, they were quite angry under the surface. And I think probably darker than many people realise. But because I deal in comedy, I think it's, it's quite easy to forget that actually they're born of rage. Can we talk a little bit about the structure of Ark Baby? in which there are several narratives going on. With Art Baby, what happened was I wrote one novel about a vet, or started to write one novel about a vet, in the, set in the 20th century, or the turn of the 21st century. And then I sort of gave up on it because I didn't think it was working, and then I started another novel, which was about a, a Victorian foundling. And that was also a, the theme, the general theme of that was the relationship between humans and animals. And then I lost faith in that as well and I went through a terrible crisis and uh, almost gave up on both of them and then at some point I thought but actually I'm writing the same novel but they're just two very different stories why don't I put them together so it was really sort of cutting and pasting and forcing them together I changed the modern story enormously so that it would fit and so I could make sense of it I did it in a way out of desperation because I just had to make this novel work and so it ended up looking far more carefully constructed than it originally was. It was born of an enormous and intricate cut-and-paste job, which, fortunately, I managed to pull off. Would you say that, as a means of coming to writing a story, looking at the relationship between two stories and seeing how they might interleave is a good idea? Well, it was a fun idea. It was fun to do, because, I mean, for example, in the Victorian story, I have this, this um, foundling boy asking his adoptive father, where did we come from? And so his father recites the book of Genesis to him, and, and the earth was out without form and void, and darkness on the face of the deep, and so on and so forth. And then Tobias says, but 
if God made all these things, well, who made God? And he, he keeps asking that annoying question that children always ask, which is why, 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 why? And then we jump to the next century where you've got the vet as a young boy with his father in the garden and they're doing some kind of gardening. And the boy asks his dad, where do elephants come from or something like that? And the father makes the terrible mistake of telling him they evolved. So what did they evolve from? And then the father says, who's not, not very sort of well up on evolution, oh, the mouse, I think. And where did the mouse evolve from? And on and on it goes. And you can see in two different centuries, two fathers faced with the same irritating boy asking the same irritating set of questions to which they actually don't have an answer. So that kind of thing was fun to do, to point out that actually there isn't a huge amount of difference between the eras in which we live because human nature remains the same across the centuries. When you write passages, do you go back over them and over them to change the rhythm, to change the sentence structure? Yes, I do. And and I think most writers do that, actually. I find dialogue quite easy, so I usually get that right the first time in terms of the rhythm. I spent many years as a radio producer, and that helped me enormously with dialogue and the rhythms of normal speech. But I believe in editing. I believe in going back again and again and again and rewriting. Some writers are lucky enough to get it right the first time, but I'm not one of those. I'm also interested in your endings and how you see endings for the reader. Well, I do like to end on a mixed note, uh, because I think most people end on a mixed note, don't they? So there's a a sort of certain realism to tying up the ends to some extent and I suppose leaving the reader with a nice warm feeling. But I don't want that nice warm feeling to be so artificial that it kills the sense of the book. Deborah Mogger put it very well. She said, it's rude. It's rude to leave people feeling depressed. You mustn't do it. And I feel that I agree with her. I feel that very strongly. However bleak you think life is or the world is, if you don't end your book on some positive note, some note of hope, then you've wasted everyone's time because you've just dragged them down. And it's quite an investment to read a book. It's, it's several hours of reading and you want them to smile or feel lighter at the end of it. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.